Okay, so the very first topic, it almost doesn't seem like it's a necessary topic because you wouldn't be an RCIA if you didn't already understand that there was a God. However, it's a very helpful topic to go over, a very elucidating topic um, to, uh, to, to, to begin with, and actually touches upon perhaps the most fundamental question that you'll, go, that you'll talk about in RCIA, and that is why do we bother to study about our faith at all? I remember once I was trying to help some people enter the Catholic faith a bunch of years ago, and they were uh, Spanish speakers, and they were saying, classes, siempre clases, classes, always classes. And they were like, why classes, why classes, why classes? Why do you have to study? Why do we have classes? reason is because knowledge serves love. You can't love what you don't know. I was overseas once and turned on the television, and there was a cricket match. Hadn't the slightest idea what was going on. Lasted about five minutes, turned it off. Absolute, complete, mind-boggling mystery. And then at one parish, I had a, a native Indian, that is to say from India, living in the parish with me. Came and watched Monday Night Football. He said, what sort of cricket is this? He didn't understand. He has the slightest idea what was going on. He walked out of the room. You can't love what you don't know. When you fall in love, do you not want to learn more about the one you love? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you live? Where'd you... Why? Because you can't love what you don't know, okay? Now, understand this. God is all about love. What God wants from you more than anything else is a love relationship forever and ever and ever. And you must learn. There has to be a certain learning process. People have figured this out. You know, they've elucidated some concepts and some ideas, and it really helps to go through it. Um, so that's why we study. And that's why, um, another reason why we study right here on your notes, because there's a lot of misunderstandings. My goodness, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the Catholic faith. Uh, who's ever heard of Archbishop Fulton Sheen? Anyway, once upon a time, this Catholic bishop had his own television show on CBS, won an Emmy Award, different times, okay? Um, but he's famous for pithy, wise sayings, and once he said, there's not one person in a thousand who hates the Catholic faith, but many people hate what they think the Catholic faith is. Mm -hmm. And when you learn, you go, oh, I didn't realize that. And that's also what these classes will help, help to understand, for example, the, the doctrine of hell, perhaps the most distasteful doctrine to all modern ears. Believe me, it has an explanation. I might even be teaching that class when it comes up, okay? Um, so we're going to talk about the question of God's existence. Now, I ask you to consider, quite simply, it's the most important question in the world. If God exists, then literally all life takes its meaning in reference to this God. If God does not exist, well, last one out, hit the lights. We might as well close up shop, right? But if God does not exist, I ask you to consider this. Um, nothing has any meaning. If there's no God, just consider. When you die, what happens to you? You return to your constituent elements. You dissolve into the dust of the earth. There's no justice. There's no balancing of the books. Everyone who did evil and got away with it profited. Everyone who suffered evil and never got any restitution um, they just, uh, you know, they just, here's a, here's a set of notes for you. Can you send that down? Um, they just, and can I get your name real quick? Paula. Paula? Yeah. All right. Can we? Got it. So everyone who suffered evil, um, you know, too bad for them. They, 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 just, they just missed out. 
in life. If God doesn't exist, nothing has any meaning. There's no right, no wrong, no meaning. And that's, that's something that is utterly unacceptable to us at a deep level. In fact, most people who call themselves atheists are not really atheists. Because they act as though there's still meaning and purpose, all of which presumes that there's a God. I could go on. To, I won't get a chance to talk about that in great detail, but if you, really, if you really were a consistent atheist, you would assume that absolutely nothing you do has any meaning whatsoever. Christmas would roll around. You'd say humbug. You, know, um, you wouldn't get upset at injustices. You wouldn't passionately strive for justice because who cares? None of it all matters, right? Um, Dostoevsky, one of my favorite authors, Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's on your notes. He said, if God does not exist, everything's permissible. Now, a lot of people have uh, thought a lot of different things about God. Sigmund Freud, he thought that religious faith was a species of insanity. And a simple way to define insanity is you're out of touch with reality. Very quick, simple definition of insanity. Um, Who's ever heard of the movie Harvey? Who's ever heard of Jimmy Stewart? It's a Wonderful Life? Okay. Jimmy Stewart made a movie called Harvey. Almost philosophically, you might take an interest in watching this movie. It's about a man who sees a rabbit, a seven-foot-tall pink. Only he sees this rabbit. Absolutely nobody else in the world sees this rabbit. And he asks, the rabbit's name is Harvey, and he asks Harvey his advice for everything. For everything that he does in life, he always consults Harvey, and everybody thinks he's crazy. Well, of course, it turns out at the end of the movie, Harvey really does exist. Um, but... If God doesn't exist, we're crazier than we're crazier than Jimmy Stewart. Okay, um, are we are we on a stage? Did anyone write the play? Or are we all just ad libbing our lines? It's the most important question because it's the question of does life has any meaning or not. Um, I don't want to get too far afield, but if you're into philosophy, there's a philosopher named John Paul Sartre. Who's ever heard of him? Famous atheist. The thing that makes Sartre valuable. Uh, who's ever heard of a Friedrich Nietzsche? Anyway, two, two famous atheistic philosophers, and they're the only two atheist philosophers I know who are absolutely consistent atheists. They go through all the philosophy. They assume life doesn't have any meaning. Words don't have any meaning. Sentences don't have any meaning. It's not on your notes. Don't look for it. Um, but just for fun, if you ever want to study those two. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, he, he died insane. He died insane. He ultimately couldn't get... And, and Sartre went back to the Christian faith of his youth before he died, because he thought it was so ugly it couldn't possibly be true. Anyway, that's just a diversion. So the most important question of all, now let me save you a whole lot of time. Atheists only have two arguments. Believe me, I've seen them all. In all of the universe, there's only two arguments. One argument from atheism says that God is psychologically harmful or immature or unnecessary, and the other is that God doesn't exist. This is the only two arguments atheists present. Now, 90% of arguments that atheists present against God's existence do not talk about God's existence. They talk, rather, about how it's psychologically harmful, how it's uneducated, how it's going to stunt your growth, it's going to give you the heebie-jeebies and the whim-whams if you learn about God. But they don't say he doesn't exist. They just say that it's bad. 90% of the arguments for atheism just criticize people who believe and say they're stupid. There's one and only one argument that says that God does not exist. And we're going to address it first and foremost, okay? It's the argument from evil. It's the only, the one and only proof that there is no God. Now, if you're a believer, 
If you believe there's an all-good, all-powerful God out there and there's evil in the world, it's a problem. It's a real problem. If you're an atheist, it's proof that God doesn't exist. Let's look at how, okay? Let's look at how. I've got three arguments for you for why God doesn't exist based on the idea of evil. Tell me if these aren't airtight. They're airtight to me, but then again, you know, I do this for fun, right? Number one, if any of two opposites is infinite, the other can't exist. For example, if there's infinite light, there can be no darkness. If there's infinite darkness, there can be no... Got it? Okay. But God means infinite goodness. So if God exists, then the opposite can't exist because the opposite is evil. But evil does exist. Therefore, God does not. Make sense? Okay. Never thought you'd hear a priest argue these things. But, let's, but stick with me. Number two. If God exists, then he's all good and he's all powerful. Because God means a being whose goodness and power are unlimited. But if God were all good, he would only will good, not evil. And if he were all powerful, he'd get everything he wants. Therefore, if God exists, everything should be good. But everything's not good. Therefore, God must not exist. Make sense? Okay, third argument. If God is all good, he, lo- and he loves us. If he loves us, he wants us to be happy. And he's powerful, he gets everything he wants. But we're not happy. Therefore, if God exists, he's either weak or bad. And that's not God. That's not God. There's a subspecies of atheism. I've got this on your notes. called process theology. I don't want to get too far afield in the academics of this, but it's this idea that God exists, but you know he's still developing. He's like a teenage God. He's still growing up. That's atheism, because we would say that God means perfection, right? Okay. Would you believe that all three of those arguments were formulated by believers, not by atheists? The first argument comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. The second one comes from St. Augustine. The third one comes from C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's because they are so confident in the answers to the arguments, they fully understand both their side and the atheist side. Interesting uh, academic uh, exercise once. I knew a professor, and he had divided the class. The class was on philosophy of religion, secular university, Boston College. Divided the class into two groups. Raise your hand if you believe in God. Okay. Raise your hand if you don't believe in God. Okay. Everybody who doesn't believe in God, your job is to write an essay about why God exists. Everybody who believes in God, your job is to write an essay about why God does not exist. Guess what the essays looked like when they came back? No. All the people who believed in God wrote essays that was like, how could there be school shootings? How could there be Hiroshima? And how could there be the horrible, all the horrors of the world? And the conclusion was, how could there be a God? And all the people who said they didn't believe in God, remember what I said saying there were? They wrote essays about like, you know, they said, well, there's this fairy in the sky and he makes all your dreams come true. And it was like the tooth fairy. And he said, he asked, the question of the, of the well, why do you think these are the results? And the answer that he intended to say to everyone, communicated to everyone, was because those who say they believe in God understand the other side. Those who say they don't believe in God don't understand the other side. And I would propose that's pretty well universal, as I'll, as I'll, get, on, as I'll get on to here in a moment. Let me try to respond to the problem of evil since I raised it. And I hope this isn't too much too fast, okay? Um, but I'm going to give you a brief course in logic here. If I want to disprove anything that you say, there's three ways to do it. I can say he had false premises. I could say he had faulty logic, or I could say he had ambiguous terms. Stick with me. False premises. 
You can prove anything in the world if you assume something that's false. For example, all priests can fly like Superman. Let's assume. I'm a priest, therefore... Now, there's nothing wrong with the argument except I've got a false premise. It's not true that all priests can fly like Superman. Secondly, faulty logic. Lots of arguments are faulty logic. Uh, everyone who lives in Ashburn lives in Virginia. I don't live in Ashburn, therefore, I don't live in Virginia, some people will say. Faulty logic. The third thing that you can do to disprove an argument, and this is a crash course in logic, okay? Ambiguous terms. Banks are a safe place to store money. Rivers have banks, therefore, let's store our money in river banks. Ambiguous terms, okay? Now, the argument from evil, does it have true premises? It does. I, everything I said was true. God's all-powerful, God's all-good, there's evil, all true. Um, is, the, is the reasoning or the logic faulty? It's not. So if I want to disprove, or and this comes up practically speaking in your life, you know, you suffer, you want to know why there's evil, death, suffering in the world. Um, pay close attention. This is the only way to prove it. Ambiguous terms. What do you mean by God? And what do you mean by evil? Okay. Now, real briefly, I'm going to jump right to the conclusion here. Uh, atheists misunderstand what we mean by the word God, and that's what we're going to talk about here this evening. And they also misunderstand what we mean by evil. Evil is not a permanent and a final state. God draws a greater good out of it every single time. Um, God is the God. God is 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 nothing but goodness Himself. But we're not going to talk about the meaning of how God draws good out of evil. That's really more a subject in spirituality. What I want to talk about here this evening is what we mean by the word God. Okay, but I did have to get that out of the way right from the beginning. The the argument against God's existence. Okay, first of all, God's nature. Talk to an atheist about God. They'll usually think that what we mean by God is that he's the greatest being in the universe. Like there's a tallest mountain, there's a biggest ship, there's a widest ocean, and there's a greatest being in the universe, and that's what we mean by God. I once talked to an atheist who said, I just believe in one less God than you do. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, in the old days, you know, they believed in Jupiter and Zeus and Apollo, and, and we don't believe in many gods anymore, we believe in just one. So I just believe in one less God than you do. And by God, he meant some kind of being sitting on top of a mountain, right? Some kind of greatest being in the universe. Would it surprise you to learn that we do not believe that God is the greatest being in the universe? Try, if you can, to wrap your minds around this. God is not a being in the universe. God is the very active existence itself. The fact that there's something rather than nothing. That very active existence, I don't know if this is too much to think about it is the ultimate proof for God's existence and what we mean by the word God. God isn't the greatest being in the universe just like someone is the tallest student in the eighth grade. Somebody has to be tallest. Might as well be you, right? Um, God is the very active existence itself. At some point, perhaps you'll... I don't know how deep your thoughts get. Sometimes these things strike you as you're coming and going out of sleep. Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, God is the very active existence itself. When he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, remember that story? Who's ever heard of the story of Moses in the burning bush? Okay, Moses, he's not yet the Moses you guys know with the Ten Commandments, tablets. He's making his way along. He sees a bush burning, but it's not consumed. He walks over and he, what the heck? Take off your feet, Moses. Take off your shoes from your feet, Moses. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
And he goes, oh, so you're a god, huh? So Moses lived his whole life in Egypt. He figures like Ra, the sun god, and all these other Egyptian gods. So which god are you? And God answers not by giving a name, like I'm Ra, the sun god, or I'm Aphrodite. or He says, my name is I am. My name is existence itself. That's who we say God is. Okay. Now, before I talk about arguments for God's existence, another preface for our God's arguments. All these are prefaces. There's no single silver bullet argument that proves God exists. If there were, you would have heard it already. Okay? Life's a little bit too complicated than that. When we talk about God's existence, this is what we mean. There's lots of little things you can say that argue very strongly for a slice of who God is. When you add all those little arguments up, they become a compelling case. But there's no single argument out there, and I just want to confess this right out front. I've proven God's existence case closed, because God's infinite. Do you think that the infinite can be comprehended by your finite mind? Think again, all right? But we can show that it's very reasonable, to the point where it's more reasonable to understand that there's a God than that there's no God. And that's all I'm going to try to do here this evening. Give you some of those, uh, give me some of those uh, thin slices for, for, for God's existence, okay? Secondly... By logic alone, I can't prove to you everything about God that we believe from the Bible. So sometimes I'll be talking about God's existence and somebody will say, yeah, but in the Old Testament, you know what Moses did and what the, the priests did, what, what, what Elijah did to the priests of Baal, and where's... My process of explaining my way to such very specific questions takes a lot longer. And I want to tell you right up front, I can't prove logically everything that we believe about God from the Bible. We'll get to that. But I can show you that further faith in this God is reasonable, and that's all I'm trying to do. Make sense? Defining my parameters here. All right. Um, Another thing about God's existence is there's enough evil in this world that if you don't want to believe in God, you'll find a reason not to. And there's enough good in this world that if if you want to believe in God, you'll find a reason to believe. In other words, it's up to your free choice. And what does God want from us after all? Starts with an L. Love. God wants love. What is love without freedom? Meaningless. Why didn't God create a world full of robots that are forced to love him? Because then it wouldn't be love. Why, didn't, why doesn't God reveal himself from the heavens and take all the mystery away? Just make us believe in him right now. Because it wouldn't be free. And if it's free, it wouldn't be love. God could make robots that that could do his will if he wanted, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted creatures that loved him freely because God is a God of love. There's enough goodness in the world that you can come to believe in God if you wish or disbelieve if you wish, but you'll always have the freedom to go either way. Okay, now with that as a background, let's talk about, let's talk about arguments for God's existence. First of all, God is a spirit, right? A spirit has no shape, no size, no color, no weight, doesn't occupy space. And a spirit has two powers, A spirit knows and a spirit wills. The perfection of knowing is truth and the perfection of willing is love. You are a body and a spirit. Do you know that? You're a body. You can weigh it in a scale. You might not want to, but you can. You can measure it, right? Um, Grows taller, grows shorter, grows fatter, grows thinner, grows wrinkly, grows old, whether you like it or not. Um, But there's also something about you that is immaterial. No size, no shape, no color, no weight, occupies no space. Like if I were to ask you to describe your courage. Yeah, I would say, how much does it weigh? 
You say, well, wait a minute, courage doesn't have a weight. How about your love? How much does your love weigh? Wait a minute, love doesn't have weight. Yeah, that's because you are not just a body, you are also a spirit. And a spirit has two powers. It knows and it wills. You ever notice there's two things and only two things you want out of life? I mean, that's quite a sweeping statement. Think about this and tell me as you... As the years progress, if it's not true, there's two things and only two things you want out of life. You want love and you want people to tell you the truth. You cannot stand hatred. You cannot stand hypocrisy. You want, I mean, obviously you need your body to be taken care of, but your spirit, your soul, as long as your body's taken care of and you've got proper food and rest and safety and no one's violating your civil rights, there's only two things that your soul wants, your heart wants. You want people to tell you the truth. They want people to, what do you want? True love, right? Truth and love. This was your spirit. But God's spirit is a little bit different from our spirit. Him is omnipresent and eternal. The words where and when don't apply to God. He simply always is. There was no life before God. There was no universe before, there was no God before the universe was created. God simply is the eternal present. Okay. God is also infinite. There's no limit. So everything we say about God is limitless. God's limitless love limitless justice, limitless knowledge. Every single perfection is infinite in God. We also say that means that God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. God doesn't just have knowledge. God is knowledge. God is omnipotent. God doesn't just have power. God is power. God can do all things. And God doesn't just have goodness. God is goodness itself. In fact, There's nothing you've ever loved in all your life that is not a reflection of who God is. People say, I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. You ever fallen in love? You ever looked at a beautiful sunset? You ever wished for justice? You ever yearned for peace? You ever looked upon a newborn baby and just kind of been in awe of the miracle of it all? All of that is only good to you because God is already all of these infinite things and you're just seeing God's reflection. You can't help but fall in love with God. This is what we mean when we say God, okay? This is what we mean when we say God. Now, with that as a mega, mega background, I want to tell you there's two kinds of arguments for God's existence, two kinds of arguments, okay? They're called cosmological and they're called psychological. And here's what I mean by that. A cosmological argument is an argument that comes from the world around us. How do we know there's a God? Look at the world around us. Look at a rainbow, look at a sunset, look at a newborn baby. You can draw arguments and conclusions from that, and we're going to. The other kind is psychological. That means you look into yourself. Okay, we're going to go over very briefly some cosmological and some psychological arguments. But that's just an overview. Okay? So from the world around us, uh, there's two big, 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 biggies from the world around us. One's causality and the other's order in the world. Now consider this. A thing cannot cause its own existence. Everything comes from somewhere. Where did this paper full of notes come from that it is handed out to you? You know that I printed it and I... Xeroxed it and I stapled it. Okay, you know that it comes from somewhere. Um, if you found a diamond ring on your desk, you might report it as lost. You know it comes from somewhere. Um, you're here because you had parents. They're here because they had parents, right? So on and so forth. If you saw a painting in a museum, you would ask who painted it. You would not think that someone one day was carrying a blank canvas past a paint factory and it exploded. And all these paints flew through the air and landed on this canvas and somebody said, hey, that's pretty, let's put it in a museum. Right? No, as a cause. I want you to consider that if we really 
look at the universe, we must consider it's a vast interlocking state of causes. But where did the universe itself come from? People say, if you ever studied physics, you know that you've heard of the, the law of, um, um, oh gosh, what, what's the, I'm forgetting, my, I'm forgetting the term now, uh, the law of conservation of matter. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That presumes that it's already been created, though, because ultimately one must ask the question, where did all this stuff come from? I mean, before, before there was a Big Bang, where did the Big Bang come from? Something out there had to simply exist on its own without being caused by anything else. That's the argument from causality, okay? Like I said, a slim little sliver, but the first thing we say about God is his name, I am. Without something that just exists, then nothing else could exist either. Otherwise, the universe is like a great big chain link where one link is held up by the other link and the other link is held up by the other link. But ultimately, nothing's ever holding it all up. Or even if it loops back on itself like a circle, where did it come from? Ultimately, we say that the cause of all things had to be the one who was not caused at all, the one who simply is, the very essence of existence itself. So far, so good? That's causality, okay? Order in the world. The world is ordered. Um, I, I sort of already touched on this. If you see SOS on an island, you think, oh, somebody needs help. A couple of examples, my favorite, one of my favorite examples. Um, back in 1976, the very first probe that ever went to Mars was called Viking 1. Landed in 1976. I believe it landed in 77. Went launched in 76. Well, when, as it was flying over Mars, it took pictures of the surface. And one of the pictures, and you can look this up, the face on Mars, there were these shadows cast and it looked just like a human face. And what did people say when those pictures got sent back to the newspapers? Oh, there's life on Mars, I knew it. It turns out it was just an interplay of life and sh light and shadow and you look at it from different angles, it doesn't look anything like a face. But it proved that people assume that order assumes an orderer, right? You don't ever just assume these things happen by chance. Well, consider some of these. I got a bunch of them just for fun for you. Thousands of bats live in one cave. They all take off instantaneously, but they never collide. Honeycomb of a bee. Do you know the hexagonal form of a honeycomb of a bee holds the maximum amount of honey with the least expenditure of wax? Those are smart bees. There's a bird called the black pole warbler. He tra travels 2,400 miles from Nova Scotia to South America, nonstop on the wing for four days and four nights with an efficiency estimated at 720,000 miles per gallon. Consider that your average jet airplane gets six gallons to the mile. Another study, 1979 Smithsonian study, across six years, they looked at 93 different bird migrations that were greater than 500 miles each. 91 of 93 birds avoided all bad weather. Somehow, before leaving shore, these birds were able to calculate weather hundreds of miles away several days in advance. It just seems too much to swallow that it just this sort of design happened kind of by chance. Human brain, 100 billion neurons, as many stars as there are in the galaxy. Line them up end to end, it would stretch 124 million miles or encircle the Earth 5,000 times. No joke. Every one of your synapses firing at 268 miles per hour performing 100 trillion calculations a second. And computers are getting faster and faster, but it's still 2,000 times faster than the world's fastest home computer. And all of this on 10 watts of power for an organ that's 75% water. One single cell contains more information in it than the entire Library of Congress. It's as if all creation bears a label which retreats made by superhuman intelligence. Now again, what could cause this? What could cause this? 
life on Earth. You ever heard of the rare Earth hypothesis? Raise your hand if you have. Just for fun. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the briefest overview. It's the idea that, yes, there's lots of stars in the universe, but the qualities that made the Earth habitable are so rare that it's improbable that it ever happened even once. Allow me to explain, okay? Um, the universe seems like an, like an uh, instrument exactly calibrated to produce human life. And if any of thousands of narrow windows of opportunity have closed, life would never have been possible. Uh, the air we breathe is 21% oxygen. 4% less, we couldn't breathe. 4% more, the atmosphere would spontaneously combust. Earth's axis, 23.5 degrees. One degree more, summer and winter would be 100 degrees hotter or colder. Um, the carbon molecule, they say that if the Big Bang had been a trillionth of a degree hotter or colder, the carbon molecule, the basis of all life, never would have developed. You ever seen um, any kind of a diagram of the solar system and the planets and the moons? One thing you might notice is that Earth's moon is remarkably big for the planet that it hosts, that, that hosts it. Earth's moon is so big it should be around something like Jupiter or Saturn. It's really, it's almost as big as a planet. Um, but without a moon that big, there wouldn't be tides. Without tides, there would never have been the crawling out of the primordial ooze of the first proto-animals of eons and eons ago. Um, without the big moon, there wouldn't be the tides. Without the tides, the life that we know never would have come to be. Very strange. All these little variables and when you add them all up, and I'm, get, I'm brushing this over in, 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 in grand generalizations, but the probability of it happening by chance is less than one in a billion people winning a billion lotteries every day for a billion years. It takes a lot more faith to believe it's all by chance than it is to believe that there's a designer. Okay? So that's, the argument, that's the argument from order in the world. Now, I must address Charles Darwin because everybody says, yeah, but Darwin says that it just happened all by natural selection. Everybody heard that before? Doesn't, it's just natural selection. And, and you know, like if you give enough, op, uh, enough opportunities and enough time and enough chances, won't one of these chances just happen? Um, you know, like if you put a, a, a million monkeys in a room and you give them a million years to bang on typewriters, won't one of them eventually type out Shakespeare? I mean, probability, right? Actually, no. Take a look at this just for fun. Charles Darwin, natural selection. Um, natural selection, as evidenced by Darwin, works nowhere near the scale needed to explain such things. Uh, you might know he went to the Galapagos Islands in the 1830s. He observed finches. Some of these finches had long beaks. Some of these finches had short beaks. Well, there was a drought. And the only food that finches could eat was locked up in dried fruit. What he noticed is that with the long, finches with long beaks ate. Finches with short beaks starved. Now, Darwin had bred pigeons. And he realized you can change pigeons' color, size, feature by choosing who mates with whom. And he came from a, the consequence of this to realize there's a natural selection process, right? Um, and the, the, the survival of the fittest. We've all heard that before. Okay. That's true for things like beak length or color of pigeons. But there's a problem that you see all across nature, and it's in your notes. I don't want to get too far afield, but I feel like I have to address this to some degree. It's called irreducible complexity. Some things are so complex that they can't grow like a finch's beak step by step. It's either all the parts are there or the, or the system doesn't work. A mousetrap is an example. You can't evolve a mousetrap. You need the trap, you need the spring, you need the, the, you need the bore. Everything has to be there. And if one part's missing, the trap doesn't work. It doesn't come about gradually. It comes about all at once or not at all. 
Now, I've got some things here in your notes about, uh, about, about cells and things like that. You can read them later. I take too long to go on to all the details. I've also got something in here in your notes from Michael Denton, who's a mathematician from Rice University, who directly addresses that question of uh, probability. If you gave a billion monkeys a billion years, will one of them eventually take out, take, type out Shakespeare? And the answer is no, they won't. If you give an infinite number of monkeys an infinite number of years and an infinite number of typewriters, they will never type out Shakespeare. Why? Because if you've studied mathematics far enough, you know that certain things have limits. Give it an infinite amount of time, it'll never go beyond a certain limit. Everybody studied that before? Maybe in high school? Anyway, just for fun, one in, one in 30 random keystrokes from a monkey will produce a three-letter English word. If you come up with a 12-letter word, the probability is 1 in 10 to the 14th power. For reference, there's 10 to the 14th minutes in a billion years. Type of a sentence 100 letters long, the chances are 1 in 10 to the 130. That's an astronomically huge number. There's only 10 to the 76 atoms in the universe. So, no, a billion monkeys giving them a billion years will never type out Shakespeare. It's mathematically impossible. And an infinite number of planets and an infinite number of galaxies still has limits and still doesn't solve the problem of irreducible complexity. That's a very brief rebuttal of Shakespeare and saying, no, there is something designing all this. If you go to college and you talk to your professors, you'll find that physics professors, um, chemistry professors, professors at the medical school tend to believe in God, especially people who you know, have studied intricacies of the human brain. History professors and sociologists, they never believe in God because it's a great big mess, right? They look at history and they look at sociology and they say, ah, oh, it's a great big mess. People, people are just bad. There's no God. But you get these scientists who are like, oh, this couldn't have happened by chance. There's got to be at least someone designing it. That's the argument. And again, not a hardcore proof, just a slice showing that it's reasonable. Another um, one, and this one's really big, and I encourage you to study this for the rest of your life, is an argument from saints. And the basic argument from saints is if there's saints, there must be a saint maker. Great people like Maximilian Kolbe, Vincent de Paul, St. Lawrence, Mother Teresa, Martin of Tours, they all had one thing in common. They all believed in God. Now question, were they all deluded fools or were they onto something? Um, there's plenty of bad examples from people who claim to believe in God, who really sought their own interests. But what you find with saints is they claim to believe in God and they actually lived like it. Now, their lives are inexpressibly beautiful. Um, who's ever heard of St. Vincent de Paul? In St. Vincent de Paul, they call him the, fa the father of modern social work. He lived in the 1600s in France, in Paris. One anecdote from the life of Vincent de Paul. He was begging on the streets for... Um, oh, and I could tell you more about his life, too, how he ended up on the streets. He used to be an ambitious man who wanted nothing more than to spend his life in the palace of Versailles, cavorting with royalty. Big conversion experience. Uh, he ended up serving God. Finds himself on the streets begging for the poor. Someone comes up and slaps him in the face. You're an inflamed boil on the buttocks of this city. It's people like you that give this city a bad name. Now, what did Jesus say to do when someone strikes you on one cheek? Anybody know? Yeah. Jesus says, when someone strikes you on one cheek, turn it off than the other. That's exactly what he did. Smack, he goes, I'll take that from me. Now give me something for the poor. Without missing a beat. Where do you get goodness like that, right? Where do you get goodness like that? Mother Teresa of Calcutta, everybody's heard of her, Yes. Did you know that she spent the first five years of her life pulling 
dying people out of the gutters and people stoned her to death. They were trying to stone her and stop her because in the Hindu culture, they thought, they thought that she was interfering with their karma, that they were in the gutter for a reason. She saw Christ in them. She's like, no, I'm going to give you a death with dignity. Um, Maximilian Kolbe, who's ever heard of him? One of my favorites. Died in Auschwitz prison. Everybody knows about Auschwitz and the Nazis, right? Once upon a time, three people escaped from Auschwitz prison. No one knows how they did it. They were never caught. Nazis lined up all the, all the prisoners, counted them off by tens. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Every tenth person was sent to die of starvation in the starvation bunker. That's what they did to punish people, to keep from ever escaping again. Starvation bunker, literally, they pack people into a room. I've been to the room. I've seen it with my own eyes. Close the door and left you there until you die. No food, no water. That was a starvation bunker. They weren't known for their niceness, those guys. So this man cries out, I must live, I must live. I have a wife, I have a family. I promised them I'd survive. Maximilian Kolbe was not number 10. He was one of the others, steps forward and says, I'll die in his place if you let him live. Will you let him live? I will die in his place. He says, who do you think you are? He says, I'm a Catholic priest. I died the day I was ordained. Let him live and let me die. Who acts like that? I can give you example after example after example. Honestly, long story short, the reason I'm Catholic is because of the saints. These are the people that took God's medicine and didn't, and followed the instructions. They didn't minimize. They didn't equivocate. What produced was beautiful. Whatever they're taking, I want it. Well, I ask you, were they all crazy or were they on to something? That's the argument from saints. Make sense? All right. Now, psychological reasons. And I realize I'm going kind of fast here, but I've never been able to get through this entire class and I'm going to try to do it this evening. Psychological reasons from our own experience. We're, we're not talking about the world around us. We're talking about the world within us now. Um, a couple of stories for you. Here's my favorite. It's the argument from desire. Everybody has desires. If you didn't have desires, you wouldn't be here. If you didn't have desires, you wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't even get out of bed. wouldn't brush your teeth. Everybody has desires. There's two kinds of desires. Fake desires and natural, or what I would say, innate and universal desires. Fake desires are ones that people condition in you. Right? You see a superhero's movie and you say, I wish I had superpowers. It's a fake desire. It's, you, you wouldn't know it if someone didn't plant it in you, right? A fake desire. Wish I could meet Santa Claus. Wish the Nationals would win a World Series, right? <laughs> fake desires. But there's another kind of desire, and it's absolutely universal. Everyone alive has these desires, right? Is there anyone alive who doesn't want food? Is there anyone alive who doesn't want love? Is there anyone alive who doesn't want to be healthy? Or is there anyone alive who doesn't want something to drink? Or who doesn't want knowledge? Now consider this, every natural universal, you understand what I mean by natural universal desires, right? Every one of them corresponds to something that really exists. You're hungry, guess what? There's such a thing as food, right? You're lonely, guess what? There's such a thing as other people. You're thirsty, guess what? There's such a thing as water. Every single one. But there's one more natural desire and everybody has it. And tell me if this isn't true. The universal desire for something more. Only a cow in a stall chewing his cud is content. But don't we always yearn for more? Isn't there come a point where you, 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 
Maybe it first started to hit you when you were a child and you looked forward to Christmas and you thought of opening all those gifts on Christmas morning under the tree. And when Christmas morning came and you opened all those gifts and the day passed and you closed your eyes and you went to sleep, you thought, huh, that wasn't as great as I thought it would be. Maybe next year will be better, right? Or maybe you're like one of these, not that you're like, but you can relate to these millionaires and billionaires who think, I know I'll be happy if I just make one more dollar. And then they make more and they're not happy. And they want more and more and more. I was driving through a big neighborhood once um, with these sprawling homes. And I was with a friend and looked at these homes and he sort of had this snide comment on these enormous sprawling homes. He just said, I know if I just build one more wing, I'll finally be happy, right? But doesn't everyone have a universal desire for that something more? There was a song a bunch of years by a group called Switchfoot, which is quite an arcane reference, but they made a song called um, uh, We Want More Than This World Has to Offer. The only reason it was a hit is because everybody wants more than this world has to offer. Well, I ask you, if this is a, uni- is a uni- universal natural desire that everybody has, for this something more, if we're, if we're always dissatisfied, if we always wonder, uh, is this all there is? You ever stop to think that that's evidence that we're actually made for more than this world has to offer? That there actually is more? That there's infinite love? You don't want finite love. You want infinite love. Is there anyone who's satisfied with love on this earth and then their spouse dies, leaves them behind? You want love that never dies. And everybody wants this. What I'm suggesting by this argument is that it's evidence that this something really exists. Just a couple more things here. Uh, It's funny how the most successful people feel this desire strongest of all. Interesting little uh, uh, footnote about the wealthiest people in the world. Did you know that they have the highest rates of suicide? You want to know why? One of the reasons why the wealthiest people in the world have the highest rates of suicide is because all the rest of us are still striving for something, right? If I can just make one more buck, I can pay my rent. If I can just... These people that have reached the top of the top, like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, who's that guy who runs Amazon? Bezos. Bezos. He's got nothing left to strive for. These people have to eventually face the existential meaning or meaninglessness of their lives, and they don't always do so well with it. Once they finally got everything their heart's ever desired and they're still not happy, I heard a story once about John Lennon. He said they locked himself in his apartment for two years. He supposedly achieved everything that he'd ever wanted in the music world, and he still wasn't happy. Interesting how that is. This argument basically says that's an argument that, that says that you were made for more than this world. Because everything that natural is universal desire corresponds to something that, that really exists. Another one is conscience. And tell me if this isn't... You have to mull over this one. Why is it that everybody in the world tries to justify their actions? Why is it that even bad people, Hitlers and Stalins and Pol Pots and Hermann Goering, why do they always say that they did right and not wrong? Why does everybody in prison say they're innocent? Right? Where does this universal idea of I should always do right and I should always avoid wrong come from? People have wildly divergent ideas of what right and wrong means. But they always think that they should do right and they always think that they're good. Who knows who Hermann Goering is? He was a lead Nazi. He was head of the Luftwaffe. He was basically head of the German Air Force. Killed himself before he was hanged after World War II in the judgments of Nuremberg, the trials that put all the Nazis on trial. Killed himself with this hidden cyanide pill. But the last thing he ever said was, 50 years from today, there will be statues to my honor all across Germany. He didn't think he was a bad guy. He thought he was a good guy. 
Where does this universal idea of we should all be good come from? We should all do right and avoid wrong. Why does everyone think they should do good? Why is there this absolute binding moral authority that demands unflinching obedience? You must do good and not, and not evil. And if you do evil, you darn well better have an excuse that it really wasn't evil. It was actually good. It's just a suggestion. It suggests that there really is an absolutely good existence. It really is an absolutely good authority. And that's what we call God. That's the argument from conscience. Here's an intuitive one, the argument from beauty. Um, Somehow an experience of beauty elicits in you the idea that there's something more. My favorite way to put this was I knew a friend in college, professed atheist. Went hiking in the Alps in Germany. And one day after a rainstorm, he saw this magnificent rainbow over the Alps. That the arc of which landed right on this beautiful white castle perched on top of a mountain. And he says, you know, it made me believe in God. And do you see what I mean by that? There's like a... You could put a newborn baby into the hands, into the arms of some really tough, mean, tough guy, and he'll melt. And there's something, there's something in this experience of beauty that doesn't explain itself, that lets you think that there must be a something more, a soaring melody that lifts your spirit and almost brings you to tears. You had that experience? Perhaps there's... Um, uh, uh, perhaps, perhaps it's a sunset over the Grand Canyon. You just go, oh, you just don't have words. Now, that's actually a revelation of who God is. But what I'm trying to say is that nudging of your soul that deep, deep beauty does, the argument here says that's caused by something. That's not an accident. And that's God trying to nudge you towards himself. Okay. Um, again, slices, little slices. Um, similar to the conscience is what I call the existential argument. Viktor Frankl, he was a Viennese psychiatrist. He was living in Auschwitz. And one of the things he noticed in Auschwitz prison was that the people that survived were not the strongest. They were often the weakest, the people who survived. And the ones who did not survive, they starved to death, were not the weakest. They were often the most physically fit. But some people survived the Holocaust and some people didn't. What he discovered was that the people who survived all had one thing in common. They had a reason to live. And the people who didn't survive didn't have a reason to live. Everybody who made it had a wife and a baby at home, and they had to... And it it, it echoes something that uh, this philosopher who I referenced at the beginning of the class, Friedrich Nietzsche, he once said, you can endure almost any what as long as you have a why. What is it in you that demands that life must be meaningful? What is it in you, if not the the recollection at some deep level in your soul, that there is meaning? And that there is one that gives the, the universe meaning. Why do people ache and argue over this idea of, uh, you know, what's the meaning of life? Or what's the purpose? What's the point? Uh, if not the real existence of some thing that actually gives it all a point. A reason for meaning. This is what we call God. Okay? Um, and lastly, universal truth. Very similar to some of the other ones I said. Um, you'd come in contact with immutable absolute truths like mathematics. You could never go to any corner of the universe where two and two don't equal four. It's an absolute universal truth. We can look up into the sky with our telescopes and get like radio spectrometry, spectronomy of what these distant stars are made out of. Why? Because we know that the atoms that are in them are the same as the atoms in here. And the atoms that we look at here give this signature when passed through a prism. And we're getting the same signature from the star that's across on the other side of the galaxy. So it must be made of the same stuff. We know the universal and absolute truths. 
Um, but this kinds of, these kinds of things, changelessness, eternity, absolutes, they're not human attributes. Matter changes. What causes these things to be changeless? It implies that there's a God who's changeless, who's absolute, who's universal. Just an argument, okay? Now, those are some of the arguments for God's existence. And what I mean to say by this is that there's a seed of eternity that's within you, a seed of God that you recognize can't be explained away by mere material alone. That's the basis for what we say that there's a God. Now, that's not enough. That's not enough, not anywhere like near enough. I can't start a religion based on just what I told you. It's just, a, just an appetizer. It's not the main course. There has to be a something more. Now, jumping ahead to what we're going to say next week, this God, who I just finished arguing for, gave us something more. He actually revealed to us who he, who he is. He came and told us about himself. That's the building blocks of the rest of our faith, okay? But uh, that's next week's class, and I'm getting ahead of myself. But the only thing that I wanted to make clear this evening is it's more reasonable to look at the universe around you and look at yourself within you and conclude that there is a God, an infinite, eternal, absolute, omnipotent, omniscient spirit than that there isn't. It takes more faith to believe there isn't than to believe that, that there is. Um, in fact, did you know, and this is the last thing I'll mention, it's a teaching of our faith. It was defined in the First Vatican Council, 1870-something. That belief in God is not something that's an article of your faith, but rather of reason. It's not, I, I, I might believe that God is a trinity because of faith. Um, I might believe Jesus Christ is coming again at the end of, end of all time because of faith. But our church actually teaches that to say that there is a God as opposed to there not being a God is not faith, but rather reason. You can figure it out by looking at the world around you and looking at the world within you. Just an interesting little point. Now, open to any questions.